Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Three words that all basketball coaches have drilled into their players since the very earliest ages. I mean, we're talking like right after you teach someone the difference between dribbling and double dribbling and traveling or how to form that shooting pocket, time and score. And that's really what game one came down to. And I'm sorry, J.R. Smith, I think (laughs) you're living in basketball infamy right there with Chris Webber and some of the other biggest blunderers we've ever seen. I'm not sure that even J.R. Smith can escape this one. It was brutal, man. It was really dark for him. And I mean, I felt the pain of Cavs fans everywhere because I think over the course of that game, I became a Cavs fan, at least for game one. And I don't know, we were both in the building and we should add, we tried recording this in person from the stadium, but there was a lot of background noise and we were getting interrupted every few minutes. And I was generally just stressed about missing the shuttle back to San Francisco. So you're currently in Oakland, and I am at the Media Hotel in San Francisco. And Look, we've got both sides of the bay covered. We're just <laughs> holding it down for the entire Yay area. Yeah, it was strange, Andrew. I mean, I would have thought that, you know, Open Floor Globe would have spread the message and all these ushers and, you know, ticket takers who were walking by making all this noise, (laughs) you know, behind our live taping, they maybe would have uh, shown a little bit more respect. But alas, you you know, know, here we are. it It was very frustrating. But can I tell you one great thing about the way this played out tonight? Absolutely. So... You know, I was pissed off about the game and then the podcast and there was all those complications. But back at my hotel, my hotel sells these little mini pecan pies that they have in the lobby and they are just the best. And I've got two sitting right here in my room now. So no matter what happens with this podcast tonight, it's going to be a great night. Well, great news. I can exclusively report that Ty Lu handed out mini pecan pies to all of the Cavaliers players, and, and they're over the loss, Andrew. They're not heartbroken anymore. They had their pecan pie, and they're ready to move on to game two. No, no big deal. Yeah, mini pecan pies are the new custom-tailored suits for the Cavs. And honestly— hold, hold on one second, though. If you're this Cavs fan, I have a question to ask you just point blank. Okay. Did this game one loss— is that the series? I mean, let's. I mean, how how broken is your heart? Because you look at this situation, you know, they're primed, you know, with this opportunity for George Hill to win it at the free throw line. He can't do it. Then they're primed to win again in regulation once J.R. Smith outmuscles Kevin Durant somehow uh, for the offensive rebound. They let it slip through their fingers, and then they get basically smoked off the court in overtime. And you know, that's no big shock. I mean, when you kind of have. Uh, a game slip away from you like that, it's really hard to mentally recover. I guess my question is, we have two days off until game two, but are you in this Cavs fan situation feeling like the series is now over? You know what? I am pretty crestfallen, and I am going to answer your question with a comment that we got from a listener uh, right after the game. It was this Sean who says, The Cavs still probably wouldn't have won the series. The winning game one would have created intrigue to last us over a week. But that's not even the sad part. It's sadder seeing how game one ended and what we lost. And now that is super melodramatic and maybe a little bit over the top. But I identify with it completely because that was a legendary 
all-time LeBron performance. And even, like, the rest of the Cavs were really impressive, too. They responded over and over again. And the, the whole game... It was just turning into something we would remember for a really long time. And again, like the Warriors are still like overwhelming favorites to win the series, even if Cleveland steals this game tonight. But it just like it is still something that we're going to remember for a really long time. It's just something that I will remember angrily for another 30 years. Yeah, you're going to remember it for all the wrong reasons. You know, I'm glad you used that word legendary because I kind of snickered at you last podcast when you were talking about LeBron's legendary conference finals. And I was trying to point out, hey, look, you know, the cute story Celtics aren't exactly the Rockets or the Warriors over here. Let's not grade them on a curve. Yeah. What he did in game one was legendary capital L. I mean, 51 (sighs) points. It was the most points in a finals game since Michael Jordan. You might have heard of him in 1993. Basically, only twice during the modern era of the finals has anyone topped 50 in a finals game, uh, Mike and LeBron. And LeBron did it light, Andrew. I mean, (laughs) we've seen him work harder for points than he had to work in game one. I mean, it was in the flow. He wasn't, you know, really forcing it. Uh, He shot very well, especially in the first half. And so obviously that helped. And he was getting, you know, a decent number of calls. Uh, you know, besides the heartbreaking block charge that sort of went against him, you know, kind of further twisting the knife for Cavs fans. But uh, it wasn't like this ugly 2015 finals that maybe I was expecting where it was like every play was going to have to be a post up to LeBron. He was going to have to shoulder all of the burden like he was doing it within their floor, their offense. They were getting pretty good contributions from multiple different guys. Uh, and obviously he was carrying his weight, and then it all goes kapoof in those final seconds. 100%, and I'm glad you bring up the Eastern Conference Finals because it's not something that I was necessarily conscious of during the game, but it did just feel different. You know, watching LeBron do that to the Celtics or watching him do that to the Raptors, it's it's almost like a... uh, varsity player beating the crap out of a bunch of like eighth graders no offense to the raptors but i mean you know that's just where we are right now uh but watching him come into oracle game one of the finals which kind of has like a super bowl feel to it anyways and he just delivers like that it's just i mean i was doing unprofessional shit in my media section like i was legit howling at some of the shots he was hitting in that first half and then to be able to, like, you could see him kind of wearing down as the game went on. He was settling a little bit more. But then to be able to fight through that, and some of the finishes at the rim were just, like, insane. Like, it was just crazy. And it really was, like, a Goosebumps-type game from him. And I'm bummed that it it wasn't commemorated with a win. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite phrases that I use that no one else on the history of the you know planet has ever used is the phrase puberty ball, where like you have one guy who's just so physically dominant, it looks like he's gone through puberty and the other guys on the court haven't. Yeah. It's one thing for LeBron to do that against like the teenagers on Boston's team, right? It's another to do it against Steph Curry, <laughs> Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, uh, you know, this team that had been the best defense. Uh, in the entire playoffs, you know, entering game one, and he was just getting whatever he wanted. And uh, I think, to me, it kind of underscored the importance of Andre Iguodala. And he was one of the X factors that I had circled. I'm sure a lot of other people had circled kind of coming into this series. But Golden State head-to-head against Cleveland has been so dominant when Iguodala is on the court and then, you know, kind of lackluster when he's been off the court. And to try to see 
you know, even with their sort of depth advantages and the different looks that they could throw on uh, LeBron to see how easily he was able to kind of get past his initial man, whether he's looking over the top of Curry, uh, whether he's just, you know, taking guys off the dribble, collapsing the defense or whatever else, to see how easy it came for LeBron uh, in game one compared to some past series where you know, Iguodala had done a, a better job of making him work. It was really night and day. And so uh, I guess, you know, tip your hat to Iguodala, even though he's not out there, uh, you know, his absence was really felt. Yeah. And the other thing that I would add as we sort of pick up the pieces here is, I mean, LeBron was out of his mind <laughs> like the entire game and it was incredible. But I, I was just as impressed by the rest of that Cavs team. And like there were three or four times when the Warriors went up six, seven, eight, and everybody in the building sort of nodded their head like, okay, this is over. But the Cavs just kept coming back. And it was guys like Jeff Green hitting big shots. Like Kevin Love played pretty well tonight. Uh, George Hill was really solid. That missed free throw aside, and we'll get to that in a second. But like, it just, I was so impressed by all of them. And to circle back to, to your question like five minutes ago, I think that's what makes this game so frustrating, this loss, is that I like... I don't think that they're going to get those type of performances from anyone outside of LeBron going forward. I just I think that this LeBron was in the press conference afterwards saying this was the best performance we've had as a team this entire postseason and I completely agree with him when you factor in like the degree of difficulty with this Warriors oh, team. Oh, no question. No question. And it's just hard to imagine they replicate that. Yeah, did you mention Larry Nance Jr.? Because I think he sh- he deserves a lot of love too. You know, coming into this series, I had kind of wondered, well, like, what's their backup plan if Tristan doesn't work or if, or if Love is injured, he's not playing that well. And I, in my head, I just assumed that they were going to try to go small so they could keep Jeff Green on the court, I guess, for defense against Kevin Durant. They could try to get as much offense as possible on the court with guys like Corver and, and J.R. Smith and George Hill. And I just thought, you know, okay, you know, maybe even open up some minutes for Rodney Hood. And I had almost kind of written uh, Larry Nance out of that equation. I thought he was spectacular or phenomenal, at least in his role uh, for what Cleveland needed. And I think, you know, to kind of underline what you're saying here about, you know, this missed opportunity for Cleveland, like Golden State has a depth advantage here. And they're going to be able to adjust, I think, to the success of a guy like Larry Nance Jr., where you know, game one may go down as like his best game of this series, right? And I mm-hmm. think that's the frustrating part because if you're squandering that, if you're squandering 51 from LeBron and like, you know, the Larry Nance Jr. game uh, and Golden State maybe being back on their heels and, and not really uh, taking the game seriously early on, um, you know, those factors are going to go against you and then you're sort of, you know, backed into a corner. Yeah. But I, uh, what did you think about what Ty Lue said after this game, though, in terms of trying to, and I don't know if he was trying to deflect the attention from JR, but he essentially put it on the refs with that block charge call. I mean, I think Ty Lue said something along the lines of they were robbed. You know, he was really disappointed that LeBron's game had sort of gone to waste because of that call. Uh, he couldn't understand why the referees wanted to review it. Because in his opinion, LeBron had been so clearly outside of the you know protected circle that it wasn't really you know capable of being reviewed. Uh, did you think he was just sort of trying to use that as a motivational tactic for his team to kind of move on? I mean, he was very clearly you know disappointed and, and frustrated in his postgame comments. Or do you think he genuinely uh, genuinely believed they were robbed? Yeah, I mean, 
it's tough. I think he genuinely believed that, and really everyone on the Cavs is feeling that right now. Uh, between it, just reading between the lines from what I heard from people who were in the locker room, and then also what Ty Lu and LeBron were saying at the podium, and I'm almost never a we need to talk about the refs guy after a playoff game, but and look, like we've had a number of playoff games over the past few weeks that end with us getting a bunch of emails from people who want us to talk about the refs. And I always kind of shrug it off because generally speaking, like shady officiating is just a baseline in the playoffs or, or the appearance of shady officiating and allegations from everybody. And it's just, it's never quite as bad as people say it is. And the right team usually wins the game, which is, was the case in a couple of those Warriors Rockets games that were a little bit controversial, but like the Warriors were the team that should have won. Um, so it's generally not like a huge deal to me. And I say all that to preface this, which is like that block charge sequence was fucking atrocious. And I can't <laughs> believe that that really happened in the final minute of a playoff game. And it wasn't the only one, you know? Like, look, there was earlier. In the earlier in the fourth quarter, there was a sequence where LeBron stripped KD pretty clean and got called with a foul, and then uh, on the other end, LeBron was like clearly fouled, and there was no call. And it's just like so stuff like that is really hard to stomach. Uh, and like we can focus on the block charge if you want. I like I understand that they once they go to review they can they can overturn it 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 was a rule i was not aware of before tonight but uh it just like it's baffling to me i i'm still i'm i'm more perplexed than pissed off but i totally understand why ty lu would be as pissed off as he was well, here I am to try to push you over the edge. I think they got the call right, Andrew. <laughs> I know, well, here's I know you don't want no, to hear no, that. No. And look, but I think there's a difference between did they get the call right and was the process correct, right? Like, And, and should and that process be in place, right? Yeah. No, that's it. That's exactly my issue is it's like I understand that technically it was the right call um, and, and really like – it was the right call, but it was it was close even then. Even if you're reviewing it and saying, "Okay, let's see what we can do here," but it just you're you're going to review ostensibly to see that he is in the circle or not, and he wasn't in the circle. And then to overturn it, it has to be like aggressively wrong, and it wasn't aggressively wrong. It was it was a fifty fifty sixty forty situation, and. Uh, I don't know. I just don't like overturning it in that situation is is crazy. Yeah, it's really tough too because it's a bang bang play. So in real time, I didn't have a strong feeling about it. Mm-hmm. When I watched the replay uh, before they made their review, I thought LeBron was drifting to his left. He wasn't completely set, so therefore it should have been called a block. Uh, when they initiated the re- review, I didn't totally. It wasn't locked in on like the terminology for what triggers it, right? So I didn't even realize that they were necessarily doing it to see where his feet were. I completely understand Cleveland's side of this saying like, why are you reviewing it if, if he wasn't that close 
you know, to the to the cylinder. I loved LeBron saying like he felt more sure about how he had read that play than any play <laughs> in his entire life. I mean, that was really laying it on thick, and LeBron's on a real roll of doing that lately. So I appreciated him standing up for himself. Um, and I also, frankly, like Ty Lue standing up for LeBron in that situation. I mean, if, for whatever reason, this really uh, gets to me. Like when Joe Prunty didn't stand up and, and uh, you know, back Giannis when it came to the, uh, the treatment of the officials, you know, during that first round series, it really bugged me. And I thought Ty Lue played it perfectly. He's probably going to get fined. I don't think LeBron said anything to get himself fined. But I love when coaches, you know, back their superstars and, and take that fine and just sort of make a statement of being like, hey, you know what, uh, you know, keep this in mind in, in future games we expect some makeups uh, as they go along but... i love that it all comes back to Giannis Inc. for you, you know? oh of course at, it, at the end of the day we're gonna be at, at the end of the finals talking about Giannis and the vip section in, in that mexican restaurant in milwaukee well there's no doubt but like i said i mean lebron was clearly outside the protective circle and so it almost seemed like I mean, do we believe that was why they went to go look at it? Or did do we believe it was just so close they didn't want to screw it up? You know what I mean? Like, were they covering their butts there? Yeah, uh, that's certainly kind of the that, – that's the, the sense that I got. And to me, I just think that if you're an official in that spot, there should be an acknowledgement that, like, the benefit of the doubt goes to the guy who got the, the call on the floor. And the language uh, in terms of the – actual review process is pretty vague um and but it just like he was he was so far outside the the restricted area that i think that at that at that point you just have to kind of give him that call if that's the way it was made on the floor and live it did look like he deserved the call so yeah i mean i'm so i don't mean to keep repeating myself but it was just bullshit yeah i mean i think that Again, like if, I mean, if they honestly, if this was an honest process, if they really uh, believed what they said they did, which was they weren't sure he was inside the circle or not, and then they looked at it, and then they concluded that he was still moving, which I do believe was the correct call, then I guess it's okay. But that's just so hard for anyone to swallow to expect, and especially on the best player in in the in the sport to have to swallow. That I think the NBA winds up taking a huge black eye on this one. You know, even if. I actually agree with their eventual conclusion. I think the process was so muddled that th- th- this is going to kind of hang over the series, don't you think? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I do think that the series is going to get pretty lopsided from here. And so game one would have hung over this series regardless, um, at, like just because of the other mistakes that were made. And we should probably get to that after the break here. But I think... I think that the officiating, it's never a good thing when the officiating is a story. And usually when people are bringing it up, it's, it's sort of sour grapes. And I understand when people kind of shrug it off and say, come on, like you lost the game, grow up, stop crying, et cetera, et cetera. But like, there were just, again, it wasn't only that, that block charge situation. There were some other really questionable calls down the stretch and uh you know that's part of having home court so that that's true too but uh just kind of a it's a frustrating um 
addendum to the whole J.R. Smith, George Hill fiasco at the very end. No, no question. And Smith, in his post-game comments, he was asked, were you guys rattled by the call? And he says, I was, so I'm sure some of my teammates were. So, you know, credit to him for some honesty there and saying he was kind of thrown off by that situation. But it's true. I mean, imagine being in that moment if you're the Cavaliers and you, know, you take that tough of a call and then, you know, you're just kind of frazzled and I think they were obviously rattled by J.R. Smith's blunder, too. I mean, you look at overtime, and they gave no up question. a 9-0 run, you know, straight out of the gate in the extra period. And, you know, it was one of those situations where, like, you know, the, the Warriors are throwing this just massive lifeline. And, uh, you know, of course, they're going to take full advantage of it. And that's why I kind of think that, you know, that final minute of regulation is most likely will hang over this whole series. I mean, kind of no matter how it goes, unless Cleveland somehow pulls off this miracle upset because – even if Cleveland gets run off the court these next three games, people are going to say, well, hey, they were right there at game one, and that, that threw the whole series out of whack. You know <laughs> Which I mean? is a little a little much. Let's not go that far. But, yeah, game one was awesome. Um, and credit to the Cavs for playing as well as they did after the last four or five days of all of us rolling our eyes at this series, mostly me. I, you were you were into it regardless, but uh... oh, I'm always into it. <laughs> but hey, did you ever think at any moment during that post game about the fact that Adam Silver was in attendance? You know, he had given his big pregame media availability, and here he's watching a 51 point LeBron performance go to waste because of an officiating call. I mean, <laughs> it's definitely rough. Like, well, that's a rough, and one. you have to also factor in all the fist pumping he must have been doing throughout the first 47 minutes of that game because it was like I think everyone who actually works for the league was probably pretty antsy about doing this for the fourth year in a row oh of course Andrew (laughs) if you think you're a Cavs fan Adam Silver's the number one Cavs fan tonight (laughs) exactly he needed this from Cleveland tonight but look Let's focus, let's move on to talk about J.R. specifically and a little bit of George Hill too. But first, Ben, today's episode of Open Floor is sponsored by LinkedIn. So please tell us about LinkedIn. Andrew, I'm so proud of us for having these A-list podcast sponsors. It's just great. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but have you tried to hire someone lately? It's hard. But it doesn't have to be thanks to LinkedIn. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn, and businesses rate LinkedIn's jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. You post to job boards and hope you'll find the right person for the job. But think about it. Ben, how often do you check job boards? Never. (laughs) Well, for most people, it's pretty occasional at best, but there is a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is there. LinkedIn, check it out if you're looking to hire someone. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry, Andrew, even yours and mine. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Go to linkedin.com slash floor and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash floor for your $50 credit today. 
Terms and conditions apply. $50 credit is no joke. Go to linkedin.com slash floor and get into it. Ben, now it is time to move to what I imagine will be the topic of the day on Friday. I feel like we're probably going to be watching replays of that J.R. Smith nightmare for years to come. And honestly, I don't want to watch that play anymore. I've seen it like uh, looped on Twitter enough and it's very, it's painful to watch. So let me read you two emails about that final minute. Is that cool? It is cool. Okay. So the first one is from Matt who says, my mouth is still agape. The first game of Warriors Cavs episode four, A New Hope had everything that we could have asked for. We had JaVale's Shackton dunk, of, dunk attempt, Clay's leg scare, Steph's first half buzzer beater. I totally forgot about Steph's first half buzzer beater, but that was incredible. Peak LeBron, a beautifully orchestrated overtime performance from a Golden State team that we wish would have been present all year long. And finally, a blunder from J.R. Smith that cost Cleveland the game. Or did it? George Hill is an 81% free throw shooter, but after he sunk the first one, I watched the color drain from his face, his eyes lifeless, and a look of sheer despair fall upon his demeanor. I think Hill let his nerves get to him on the big stage with a shot that may have been a game winner. And then that is followed by Brett, who writes in and says... People are going to be J.R. JR Smith apologists and say, well, Hill missed the free throw, and to that, everyone should yell back, J.R. didn't even take the shot. Of course Hill missed. That sucks, but players miss shots. You don't do what J.R. did. You just don't do that. So what do you think of both situations? Well, I like that you started this by saying how painful it is to watch that replay because when JR fell on Clay Thompson's leg in the first quarter, I had flashbacks to how I blew my knee out. I got undercut in a very similar situation, actually the same leg. And I always sort of uh, flinch when I see plays like that. I, I can't help it. It's just subconscious. Yeah. Watching JR's blunder at the end was more painful than that. So it's more painful than deep-seated, deep-rooted subconscious uh you know traumatic pain that's how bad can i tell you something and i yeah before we move on the the first quarter play with clay thompson i have no doubt that that was a little bit dirty but jr was also like making a real play on the ball and it was i'm really glad that clay thompson is healthy because it wouldn't be the same series without him obviously but also i feel like if he had been seriously injured J.R. Smith would have been turned into like Kermit Washington because of like the the amount of people on the internet who are just isolating like him undercutting Clay at the very end, like completely detached from any context, and it would have gotten really ugly, and it would have been a little bit frustrating. No, I mean even the venture capitalists who could afford the uh, you know five figure seats for Game One of the NBA Finals were ready to throw their beers. Andrew. <laughs> it's going to get really ugly. Yeah, <laughs> they were ready to throw those eighteen dollar beers onto the court. They were really upset after that happened. But um, back to the blunder. Now I'm with the second person who says you know this is not on George Hill. You know guys miss free throws. That definitely happens. He made the one that was actually the tougher free throw, right? Yeah. The first one. Isn't that the more difficult shot? 
the the tricky part with Jr. and I, I can't tell if this was a strategy or an accident because can we ever get inside of Jr.'s head? As LeBron basically said on his post game podium, like, "What do you mean? Like, how am I supposed to imagine his mindset?" It's Jr. Smith, you know, essentially, is what he said. Uh, but he had two different explanations, Andrew. His first explanation was seemed like the honest one, where he essentially admitted that he didn't know the time score, that he thought that they were up, and he was trying to dribble out the clock. His second explanation in the locker room was he was trying to dribble to freedom, basically, so that they could call a timeout because he knew the game was tied. Now, is this sort of, you know, like the uh, alternative facts approach to what happened? (laughs) Is he just trying to muddy the water so that people can't blame him? Is he trying to, you know, pass the blame to maybe his coach or LeBron, everybody else who might have been trying to call the timeout? Uh, Which version is true? Well, first of all, when I heard his explanation, we were in the main interview room, but you you showed me his quote where he said, "I thought we were I thought I thought we were going to call a timeout." I really, for his sake, wanted to believe that, and so I I bought it. And then, somewhat, I I saw the quote where Ty Lue said he came out of the game and said they thought he thought they were up and. I don't know. I, first of all, I imagine someone was like coaching Jr. on what to say afterwards. <laughs> like it was like someone in a police station. Get your story straight. But um, it was like that cleaner guy from Pulp Fiction. Like comes through <laughs> and he's like, "Okay, we have to go to the media room and make sure you tell him." Here's like, what we're gonna say. Uh, as far as look, I don't. I, I'm with LeBron. I can't put myself in Jr.'s head at the end of that game. I do think it it certainly looked like he thought they had the lead and it was painful to watch. I don't know. I mean, it's not like they were guaranteed to get a bucket there. So I'm I'm not really like pinning the entire loss on that. I do think that once that happened, Cleveland just came completely unglued and we saw that in overtime um and I, beyond that, though, it's just it's J.R. Smith. Like you, they, you, you said after the game that it's a one in ten thousand thing. With J.R. though, it is not a one in ten thousand thing. Like that has happened a, a handful of different times where we have seen J.R. Smith make just inexplicable decisions in big moments. And we've also seen him come up huge in big moments because he's clearly just totally detached from all of this. And so... Look, but Andrew, even by his own standard, I mean, this is a man who tried to untie an opponent's shoe. This is a man who talked to, like, you know, bystanders on the court during live action so that the guy could, you know, cut behind him and get the dunk. I mean, this is the lowest of the low point, given the stakes. And what I thought was really incredible was Steve Kerr you know, breaking out a callback to the 1984 second round when Derek Harper for the Mavericks essentially did the same thing, dribbling out the clock in a tie game against the Lakers, thinking he was up and sort of forcing overtime. And it's hilarious to watch the clip uh, because Magic Johnson's playing defense on him as he's doing this. Mm -hmm. And Magic knows the time score, but Derek Harper doesn't. So Magic's like trying to defend him, but he's like also at the same time, try not to defend him too well. So he like understands what's going on. You know, he's like trying to bait him into continuing to dribble in, in circles. And uh, the way JR moved uh, 
made me think he knew or he thought <laughs> totally. that they were it, up one because it was the he dribbling was playing in like circles keep away. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just sort of like <laughs> dribbling out to the perimeter like you normally would to get ready for a turnaround jumper. He was like dribbling as if he was trying not to get tagged or, you know, uh-huh. fouled in that situation. And so I really don't understand the purpose of his second story, um, but it, it doesn't pass muster to me. Yeah. Well, I would just add that per the email from Matt, I too noticed that George Hill's body language at the free throw line in that final sequence was not great. And I, it occurred to me that like he probably had never come anywhere close to as big of a moment as that was. And granted, he hit the first one, which was big, but like I was not super confident in him to knock both those down. And the one thing I really am bummed about, it would have been fascinating to see who takes the the last shot with Golden State down one with four seconds left. Well, there's no question. And I mean, if, speaking from George Hill's perspective, I mean, do you think he's kind of feeling relieved that it went that way? Because imagine, <laughs> no, if, imagine not. if Katie, well, what if Katie gets the rebound and Golden State wins, then he's the GOAT for missing the free throw. I'll tell you one person who was really glad that uh, J.R. Smith, uh, you know, screwed up that, that blunder, and it's Jordan Clarkson because nobody's talking about Clarkson's night. We'd all be sitting here just hammering Jordan Clarkson for uh, his uh, propensity for shooting in this game if Jr. hadn't uh, kind of come out as the goat. But let me tell you something. Uh, Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that Rodney Hood is actually good, but he's not. You are though. He's not. <laughs> First of all, I am, and I have been, <laughs> um, for better or worse. He look. Rodney Hood is not going to be worse than Jordan Clarkson was tonight. And I understand where Ty Lue's coming from. Like, throw him out there in that first quarter and see what you got. But he was given way too much rope as the game unfolded. And look, Jordan, like, at least with Rodney Hood, there's a version of him who has been good and has been helpful in a winning context. It's that's not Jordan Clarkson. And I don't understand why we had to go through the motions with that tonight. And again, as the Cavs made a game of it, I became pretty invested in them, like closing this out and getting this win and making the next week a lot more fun. And Jordan Clarkson was driving me fucking crazy. (laughs) Okay. Last couple of things on this JR blunder. First of all, I always defend Draymond almost always. And once again, I was on the same page as Draymond. His view of JR's play was, I thought he was looking for LeBron. I would have been looking for LeBron too. Guess what, Andrew? In that situation, I definitely would have been looking for LeBron. Regardless of whether I thought my team was up one or tied, I don't want that ball once I get the rebound. I'm giving it to LeBron and letting him handle it. Uh, And the other thing I want to ask you about with this George Hill scenario so lebron obviously on that play made the decision not to shoot and to pass to george hill right uh-huh. he trusted his teammates and it kind of backfired in this situation although no one could have predicted how it would backfire obviously does he still trust george hill in game two if he finds himself in the same situation or did he see the same life go out of george hill's face like our emailer is claiming and is he going to adjust his uh his percentages and his decision making uh if he gets into a similar situation well it's very tricky because i don't want to overreact to game one and like i said like i just kind of fell in love with this Cavs team tonight and my heart is full and i need to remind myself that george hill like 
once every three games just goes completely invisible and just sucks. <laughs> and so that's a distinct possibility. And I'm sure LeBron has factored that into his decision-making going forward. But like George Hill, aside from that miss, deserves a ton of credit. Like he was very, very solid this entire game. And when he had five fouls it, late in the game, like I, it occurred to me that the, the Cavs just have absolutely no alternative to having him out there and having him play pretty well so yeah I think and I think that's the same is true with LeBron is that he's gonna have to trust George Hill because there's no other option so it's 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 George Hill or Jordan Clarkson and I think the choice is pretty easy at this point I'm not second guessing LeBron I'm not questioning his decision but I will say on that play I was surprised he didn't just take the last shot given the number of game winners he's hit here in the postseason, given how well he was shooting in game one, mm-hmm. you know, given the fact that he was getting basically any switch that he wanted and he was regularly being able to get himself in a situation where Steph Curry was guarding him, and given that the clock was basically in their favor so they could sort of do whatever they wanted, down one, I mean, if there was ever a time for LeBron hero ball, especially when he was sitting on, I think, 49 points at that point, yeah, uh, that might have been it. And again, I'm not... It sounds like I'm second-guessing or saying he made the wrong decision. I'm not. I mean, he, he got George Hill in a great situation to score. Um, it, it played out. It just backfired, like I mentioned. Uh, but I was surprised, given how this postseason has gone, that LeBron didn't just take it into his own hands. Yeah, I was actually kind of happy with it because, first of all, he got the call and, and George Hill went to the line. But also, LeBron at that point, I mean, it didn't, really matter because he was able to make the plays down the stretch but he was just so gassed and I didn't have a ton of confidence in him being able to get a bucket on that possession and like the Warriors were scheming around him almost exclusively and so like he was getting a lot of attention from the defense and I just didn't think it was going to end particularly well and credit to LeBron he found George Hill and and Hill got to the, the line um but I hear but you. But Andrew, this is the same guy that hit a runner off one I, leg at full speed, and the same guy a step back three from thirty five feet though, against the that Pacers. Was JV, I mean, look, okay? it was going to end pretty well. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you completely. But it's like there, there's a different curve when when it's the Warriors instead of the Raptors. Um, and I think, it, look, I mean that that LeBron game was out of control (laughs) and i'm gonna be thinking about it all weekend and i hope that he can come up with at least one more of those performances in this series because the one thing you can say is it is so much more fun when cleveland like has the lead in these games and when once it like gets to be warriors by eight warriors by 10 warriors by 12 it's just like well shit okay so this is this is it this is exactly what we knew was going to happen but man when lebron turns it on and actually makes it competitive this series is every bit as fun as it was like four years ago um and well let, let's play this uh, alternate history where george hill you know makes a free throw so now it's golden state's ball right they have a timeout they can call, they draw it up you know KD is going to be screaming for the ball because that's just sort of his nature. You know Steph is like going to generally just say, okay, coach, whatever you think is right, you know. Do you think KD winds up taking the shot in that situation or do they find a way to get the ball to Steph Curry? And I think given how game one was going, Steph was probably the right option, right? Yeah. Uh, how, how do you think that uh, 
played out. I mean, that's the, the, the greatest what if from this game, right? That is a good segue. I feel like we need to talk for five minutes about the Warriors because this has been almost exclusively Cavs and refs. And to me, I think this choice is clear. Steph was playing really well, and I was pumped about that. I think this this is probably going to be the first year that he, he finally wins finals MVP. And KD, I mean, look, we'll talk about this more probably next week, and, and maybe it'll be moot because he'll find an, uh, a rhythm and get going, and it none of this will matter. But, like, he still looked out of sorts again tonight and um i think he was eight of 22 or something like that from the field and was just settling for a lot of rough looks and uh for that reason alone like katie maybe maybe it's nothing but like and maybe he just wasn't making shots but i think you you have to put the ball in steph's hands in that moment the only reason i said earlier it would have been fascinating is because maybe like there there have been a number of of sequences over the last couple weeks where the Warriors have given Durant some like obligatory touches and like it's totally conceivable that that would have happened with with four seconds left because he could still like he he is the best matchup on the court so maybe that's that would have been Kerr's thinking there yeah, we saw some more finger pointing between Durant and Curry when Curry had that bad entry pass that went for a turnover. Durant did not look happy about it at all. I mean, it's still you know something to keep watching is the little t- the tension between those two guys kind of carrying over from the last series. I only hated about half of KD's missed shots tonight. I mean, I thought in general he settled too often. Yeah, uh, he he wasn't aggressive enough getting to you know great shots. He was sort of settling for good shots. After the game, he had kind of an underrated cocky line, something to the effect of he took every shot that he wanted. There was only one that Cleveland actually defended pretty well, yeah. which I thought was uh, uh, maybe a little unnecessary, you know, given you know, the overall quality of his play, but. I think the stunning thing to me was the gap between LeBron and everybody else on the court, right? Like you're saying, Steph played a pretty good game. KD played sort of an average game for him of this postseason. Uh, was LeBron better than both of them combined? I mean, well, I'm not going to go that far because Steph hit some backbreaking shots and was incredible in his own right. On KD, the one thing that kind of crystallized it for me was Matt Moore somewhere in the in the course of that game on Twitter said that Durant was back to being used as Warriors Carmelo and that totally captures what's frustrating about what his role has become in these playoffs because it just feels like the Warriors they have this great rhythm and then they just kind of pitch it to KD and and ask him to do something and granted he's worlds better than Carmelo but it still just feels kind of disjointed. Um, but we don't need to dwell on that. I do think that watching that game, I mean, look, this time last year, we were having debates about whether Durant had overtaken LeBron as the best player in the world. And those debates are not happening after after game one because LeBron is just that incredible. And I do think that like Durant has taken a little bit of a step back and Steph, I mean, I'll always stand for him, but he's not, he hasn't been as consistent. Like, I don't know how you compare anyone to LeBron right now, because I don't think we've ever seen any player in the history of the league have like this kind of run through the playoffs. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one other thing we should mention with the Warriors outside of just their two superstars is wasn't there a little bit of arrogance from their coaching staff in terms of that rotation? I mean, they're playing 11 guys in the first half, Andrew, in a finals game. They had just come off this series against Houston where they had been down to like seven or eight, and then they come back here, you know, on the biggest stage in this hallowed game one, the Super Bowl, like you were calling it earlier, and they're trotting out these lineups with, you know, JaVale and Quinn <laughs> Cook know. and Pat McCaw. And it's just like, are you guys serious? You know, and there was times I couldn't believe it, but like Cleveland was actually surviving with some of their bench out there. You know, when LeBron's off the court and when Golden State had all four of their all-stars on the court. So it was just sort of one of those games that was weird all around. Yeah. I don't think Golden State can play as many guys as they played in game one going forward. I think they need to tighten this up and get serious. I mean, it it was very funny to see them go from like playing five and a half guys against Houston to suddenly fast forward to the finals and JaVale is getting like real post touches and getting extended run out there. It was a little bit of a flex on Steve Kerr's part and maybe this was sort of a feel out game for the Warriors because... They didn't really know what type of look the Cavs were going to throw at them. And uh, and so I think Steve, look, Kerr loves to just sort of like play 11 or 12 guys. And he had to kind of repress that against the Rockets because they were a real threat. And maybe this is a sign that Golden State does not see Cleveland as a real threat. And they probably shouldn't. So, you know. Um, no, they probably should, Andrew. This is the final. Well, Stop messing around. They already blew one. They already blew one championship in 2016. That's you fair. know what I mean? Like, if they hadn't done that, I would have been okay with it. But one, I have, I have one enough. other like, thing for you here before we move on. Okay, real quick though, David West four minutes were the longest four minutes of my life. I don't know what <laughs> what was going on with that, but they need to chill there. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it's like McCaw's out there, you know, he does nothing basically when he's on the court. Just stop screwing around. Yeah. Well, listen, we need to talk about one other warrior, and that's Draymond. You mentioned him earlier. Darcy emailed in and asked, has Draymond Green overtaken Dennis Rodman as the greatest NBA asshole of all time? And look, there's a lot to talk about here, and we don't have that much time. I will just say this. You mentioned earlier that Cleveland was surviving, and I think a lot of that has had to do with how like how rough Draymond has been on offense. I mean, he's just not shooting anymore for, for long stretches of the game, and it makes the Warriors much easier to guard. I th- Cleveland was hiding LeBron on Draymond for some of the game. They hit love on Draymond, and it just like this... This Cavs defense should not have a prayer guarding these guys, but when Draymond is out there not shooting, they basically just leave him alone. There's no one within 20 feet of him, and uh, it makes the Warriors much easier to guard. So that's one thing. On the other hand, he hits two gigantic shots down the stretch to put that game out of reach, and then... As I was thinking, I, like I was on the bus back to the hotel, thinking about like the weirdness that's going on with Draymond, and I don't know whether it's his shoulder or what. And then I look at his line, and he finished with 13, 11, 9, 5, and 2 
which is just incredible. It's like a, a textbook Draymond line. So maybe my concern trolling is completely misplaced. And then the final point is that, yes, he. I don't know if he's more of an asshole than Rodman, but he is certainly Rodman's equal. And his behavior down the stretch, People, if people haven't seen his face in the press conference when they ask him about J.R. Smith, go look that, that up on Twitter. Like, I was just, it was the most Draymond game possible tonight. Yeah, I mean, it really seemed like once, you know, J.R. Smith lost his mind, it caused everyone to lose their minds. I mean, <laughs> totally. like, when the game melted down, I mean, here's Draymond getting into it with Tristan Thompson and, you know, Thompson fouling Sean Livingston for a shot that that was a completely fine shot by Livingston. Why is Tristan Thompson freaking out? Why is Draymond, like, just going absolutely nuts in the wake of the Tristan Thompson uh, ejection and LeBron and Steph are, you know, jawing back and forth. Why is that happening? It just seemed like the whole thing kind of blew up. But to your point about Draymond not trusting his shot for a lot of the game, it's so evident. And it was something that was really happening a lot in the Western Conference Finals too. Because when they stay big and have Draymond and he's a non-shooter, that means they've got two non-shooters on the court. And so, you know, part of their offensive flow issues are coming when KD's, you know, working in tighter quarters than he's used to because the court is in space because Draymond's kind of, you know, crunching the court without his, uh, you know, shooting ability. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, the defenders aren't rushing out to close out on him, kind of daring him to shoot. And then the ball stops in his hands because, you know, he's waiting for somebody else to get open. So, you know, some of Golden State's isolation um, issues can kind of be traced back to, to Draymond not having that full confidence in his shot. Yeah. To see him flip all of that on its head and hit two three-pointers was legitimately stunning uh, in the in the late moments. And so, you know, I don't want to excuse him for everything the emailer was upset about because some of his antics were certainly <laughs> over the top. You know, but he probably earned a few of them. You know, yeah. You know how you know that I was in the tank for the Cavs tonight. Uh, would it be everything you've said well, to this yes. point or, or something else? <laughs> but it was. At the end, look, I love some good, like, obnoxious Draymond shit, but when he, like, broke out the pom-poms, and I guess he was, he was, uh, mocking Kendrick Perkins on the bench, and, but he was just making a whole big thing of it, and I was actually pretty pissed off at him, because I was like, you know what, Draymond, take it down a notch tonight, because this Cavs team just fought their ass off, and I feel like they deserve... A little bit more respect and dignity than you're giving them right now but credit to Draymond he is completely incapable of taking it down a notch at any point no he seems intent on dragging the Warriors into the villain role whether they want to or (laughs) not (laughs) you know like Curry's over there trying to you know live this this Steve Kerr you know philosophical lifestyle of being the good guy and playing the right way and you know inspiring the children and everything else and Draymond's just running completely the opposite way against traffic for all of it and you know it's funny to see yeah um all right well let's move on here but before we do today's episode of open floor is also sponsored by buffalo wild wings our old friends andrew we're out here just making it rain with these advertising (laughs) bucks tell us about this time of year at b-dubs Andrew, Lee Jenkins wrote a brilliant piece uh, that was basically explaining why June is for LeBron. He goes back through the last eight Junes and just lays it out. You know, it's just this is the time of year for LeBron. It's also the time of the year 
for dads and grads. That's right, graduations and Father's Day. And what we know from previous Open Floor episodes, Andrew, is there's no better gift for dads and grads than a Buffalo Wild Wings gift card. Forget another tie. Forget that balloon that will probably just float away. Ask yourself, is there anything in the world my dad or my grad likes more than wings, beer, sports? The answer is no, Andrew. They want that Buffalo Wild Wings gift card. Right now, if you purchase $30 or more of gift cards in-store or online, Buffalo Wild Wings will give you a $5 bonus to keep for yourself. That's a gift that gives back, Ben. How generous of you free money (laughs) buffalo wild wings wings beer sports terms and conditions may apply check it out get hook up your dad hook up your grad and uh now it is time to talk about one of the weirdest stories of the last five years probably and there have been a lot of weird nba internet stories I don't even really know where to start. I've, I've got a question here from Andrew who says the burner accounts were Hinky's revenge plot. Hinky is a progressive thinker, right? He's pretty tech savvy. He created the burner accounts knowing they would be picked up by the AI algorithm that sent the tip to the ringer. All the inside info in the burner tweets came from him through his connections in the league. I I don't know. Wait, what do you think? What do you think of all the, everything that's happened? It, let me say this. It's it, in the immediate aftermath of that Ringer report, I there was a non-zero possibility to me that Hinky was involved in this somehow. Well, first of all, we were joking earlier about how, you know, George Hill and Jordan Clarkson are kind of glad that J.R. Smith screwed up because it took the pressure off them. Yeah. There may have been a faint moment of hope for Brian Colangelo that J.R. Smith's uh, mistake would just change the story and everyone would forget about the Sixers. But alas, that is not the case. On you know uh, Thursday night, ESPN.com reported that the Sixers are you know essentially strongly considering firing Brian Colangelo. And just sort of to reset for people who are living under a rock, there's these tweet accounts that are under kind of anonymous names I'm, that have been I'm tweeting really out. I'm really excited to hear you try to explain this. They're, they're tweeting out all sorts of information that only some would, you know, with access to the highest level information of Philadelphia 76ers basketball would know, such as, you know, failed physicals for Jaleel Okafor, uh, you know, such as, you know, behind the scenes tension, uh, you know, regarding, say, you know, Joel Embiid. Uh, you know, Nerlens Noel's presence in the locker room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there has been uh, suggestions that the source of this information was Brian Colangelo, the GM, or somebody close to him. Mm-hmm. And obviously this has angered Sixers fans who have, you know, been in the tank like you for the Cavaliers for <laughs> Sam Hinkie for the last, you know, three or four years and who never really welcomed Brian Colangelo as his successor. So with that being said, do you think these accounts were Colangelo or as a new popular theory, uh, it, they could have been voiced by his wife and does it matter if it was BC or his wife? Yeah. I mean, initially I bought into the idea that it could be Colangelo because there are people all over the league, in, like in executive roles who have these burner accounts and it would not surprise me in the slightest 
if like a, a number of them actually use them to tweet at people probably not to the degree that, that these accounts were but i think that like i'm sure that that goes on and i i know of a couple people who have like these shadow twitter accounts first of all another thing i love about this story burner accounts are now like a mainstream term and i think it's due entirely to the nba is that accurate do you think it might be due to Kevin Durant. I'm not going to confirm KD, or deny that. But. Yeah, KD popularized it. But uh, no, I, I, it was completely plausible to me that it was Colangelo, um, albeit it would have been like a really sad story if it was him. Um, and like a, a pathological kind of insecurity that's just pretty brutal uh, to have on display for the whole world. I think having knowing that it's his wife because i i i think that his wife was responsible for almost all of this definitely makes it it is a more plausible and and less heartbreaking explanation for it because i think i don't blame his wife for seeing the media reception that he got in philly like look Say what you want about Colangelo, and I think there's a lot of legitimate criticisms you can make. He was never really given a fair shake in Philadelphia, and uh, and look, like the Sixers fan base is fucking psychotic, and he was not Sam Hankey, and so he he dealt with like a lot of crazy criticism, and I don't totally blame his wife for just venting and and taking to the Twitter streets, and I. In addition to the the Twitter accounts, it, it looks like she had several like commenting accounts on various uh, Philly sports sites. So it was, it was, she was in deep. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you don't want to be the two guard in Chicago after Michael Jordan, and you don't want to be the GM in Philadelphia right. after Sam Hinkie. That's a no win situation. And um, and I'm sure I would say I'm sure Sixers fans a- would say, look you were part of a power play to force Hinky out. So that was part of the disdain that they had for him, which I understand entirely. I'm just talking about if I were Brian Colangelo's wife, I would be pretty pissed off by the whole thing. Well, okay, I'm going to give you my real takes and then we're going to put the tinfoil hat on. I know you always have your tinfoil hat on, so there's no <laughs> real difference. But uh, first of all, ego is absolutely a major part of successful gms or unsuccessful gms i mean that job requires a lot of ego right and so if it was him it wouldn't surprise me the kinds of comments that he was making about like masai ujiri's contract or like the credit that he didn't get in toronto or the credit that he thought he deserved in philadelphia i mean those are things that sort of line up with either brian colangelo or somebody who would be completely team colangelo that would be his wife and like the overlapping circles like the venn diagram of things that he was searching for credit for uh makes it seem to me like it couldn't have really been someone else close to him right like it'd have to be basically uh him or his wife or like a direct family member i mean no one else would care yeah uh, about his raptors tenure or whatever else <laughs> and i but i also think the way he came out and denied it uh that made me think he was trying to parse it. Like he, he didn't want to come out and basically said like, look, my wife did it. Okay. It's not my fault because he wanted to come off kind of classy and professional, like any you know person would want to in public. But he was also trying, I think pretty much obviously to, to save his job too. Yeah. 
I guess my point is I don't see any difference. If you're putting that kind of privileged information, personal information, and in some cases like very negative information about players, you know, especially Okafor or whoever else, into the public sphere, and if you're encouraging writers to like follow up and do reporting based off of it, you know, whether uh, you personally are the one doing that or if you're the source of that information to your wife, either way you're responsible and I think either way, this should cost him his job. Yeah, and I'm reading this Zach Lowe and Woj report right now, and one of the lines in there is, is, so far, Philadelphia ownership has shown little, if any, inclination to separate Colangelo's culpability in the matter. Should a family member or close associate be proven responsible for the postings, league sources said. Um so yeah, I, I think it sounds like Philly ownership is on board with your reading of everything. And no, I mean I think that's the fair way which to is, do it. I mean, I I'm a little surprised. I, I will say this because I I think that the ownership there has not always had like the the greatest backbone. And uh, and once it came out that it was his wife, it became a closer call as to whether you fire him. And I personally just had a feeling that they were going to be too gutless to actually make this move and i do think andrew it's so untenable though i mean imagine calling that team meeting in training camp and being like hey guys uh like we're really getting excited (laughs) for the season by the way anything you say in these log rooms may wind up going to my wife and she may tweet it to a beat reporter so just fyi (laughs) yeah you know be careful there and like some of the stuff like Markel Fultz and his mentor and like the shade being thrown there in terms of like, he's the one who's kind of screwing up his shot and all that. I mean, that was a drama that played out publicly over the course of weeks. Remember? I mean, the different stories and, you know, it's the organization's job and it's the management's job to take the lumps for all of that. And look, I understand that that's a tough part of the job, you know, but responsibility is responsibility. That's why you get paid the big bucks. You have to look like the bad guy sometime and sneaking out your version of events or having your wife sneak out your version of events, you know, months after the fact or, or having it come to, uh, you know, public knowledge down the road only kills your internal vibe. You know, right. those players are never going to look at him the same again. They're never going to trust him again. And frankly, they may not trust the organization because he's that much of a figurehead for that team. So if I'm those owners, first of all, I'm finding out where every player is and like I'm going on a little jet setting tour to every single guy to apologize face to face and say, look, that's not what we're about. You know, let's keep our problems in house. I'm going to take care of this. You know, we'll move on uh, from the GM and we're going to find a new guy you guys can trust. You know, this will never happen again. I mean, that's the level. I mean, that may sound paranoid or over the top, but we're looking at a lot of these players are 20, 21 years old, you know, like Fultz. He's got enough mental baggage. He doesn't need to know his GMs <laughs> out there, you know, like slandering him on Twitter, you know? Well, first of all, you keep saying Colangelo himself. I don't think it was him uh, it, making it. Well, that's fine. But he's responsible for that information being out I, there, right? Like, I agree with you there. And the other thing that I would add is to circle back to something you, you mentioned a couple minutes ago. His response to all this if it were ever a close call as to whether or not the Sixers should keep him, I think his immediate response to kind of spin and lie confirms to me that he's just kind of a, I don't want to be too personal, but just kind of a shady dude who I don't, I wouldn't trust if I were a player because 
he had to have seen what was being alleged and instantly recognized that it was his wife. And if not recognize it then, like, I don't know. I mean, look, if my wife were, were posting this often to pe- people on the internet, like I would know something was up. Like some of these th- internet comments are pretty like elaborate and in depth and I would know that she was doing it. And so I think, well, let's be let's be real. If she was emailing me hate mail, right, and I was able to connect the dots and say, Andrew, this is either coming from you <laughs> or your wife, it wouldn't matter, Andrew. You would take responsibility I would. for it, right? Absolutely. You would. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. And, and like I'm not trying to say hundred percent it's him. I obviously I don't know that. But from a player's perspective, if you're Markel Fultz or his agent, people close to him, if you're Ben Simmons or his agent, people close to him, Jaleel Ogafor Joel Embiid, same thing. There is no distinction, right? That's coming from the Colangelo household. Right. That is a Colangelo thing. And that's why, to me, it's untenable, and he should be gone. And frankly, I think he should already be gone. So where do you think this ranks in the annals of crazy NBA shit that has happened over the last five or six years? Where do you put it out in like the top five? You know, it's weird because I've been chewed out by a decent number of NBA executives by text message before, you know, and like usually you get the little like off the record dot, dot, dot. And then like here comes like the stream of consciousness right. where they're just like really shoving stuff in your face hard. And, you know, at that moment you realize like if you tweeted a picture of your text message, right, like that person would be in serious trouble. Obviously, you would never do that. Um, so the comments themselves didn't really throw me for that much of a loop because I could kind of see someone in his situation feeling like he had all these suppressed secrets that he just wanted the world to know and not view him as such a negative person. Yeah. Um, so that part didn't surprise me. But the way it unfolded and, you know, the so-called source, you know, and this is where I want to get into my tinfoil hat thing because, you know, if we're going to be de- detectives, Andrew, like let's be Nancy Drew, okay? Let's <laughs> let's let's really dig in. We could be the heart. Let's be the Hardy Boys. Can I right? just say I'm so pissed off that this happened during Game One, uh, like the the week of the NBA Finals, because I could talk about this for two hours with you, and we were on a flight on Wednesday, so we couldn't record like a bonus Colangelo podcast, and we just had to talk forty minutes about Cavs Warriors, but like. This, there's so much here, but yes, let's put on our Nancy Drew hats here. All I'm saying is, look, motive, opportunity, means, all right? Motive. The top of the suspects list, if we're doing uh, a movie, <laughs> the very top of the suspect list, number one is Sam Hinkie, right? Yeah. Who else has more of a vendetta against against uh, being forced out against the Colangelo's? than Sam Hinkie. Now, opportunity. We know Sam Hinkie's got nothing but time on his hands, right? He hasn't been working. He's been consulting for different jobs. He knows a lot about uh, technology. He is a very savvy Twitter user. He's used it in the past. He knows about artificial intelligence and all these other things. And then the means. And again, like the means here really is the knowledge and knowing what has been public, following this stuff very carefully, and what hasn't been public. Like, you know, if I'm Colangelo and, you know, you're sort of thinking like, who could have pieced this together? Like who could possibly have leaked this to the ringer? Uh, I mean, of course you're going to think, well, the fan base has a lot of real dedicated people who are willing to dig into my life. So there could be some fan base members who are that dedicated, 
But wouldn't your mind also immediately go to Hinky? I mean, <laughs> if, if I was Colangelo, I would be like, does Hinky tap my phone? Like, did he leave like a bugging system in the office? Like, that's where my mind would go if I was Colangelo. It, honestly, it speaks to the bizarre caricature of Hinky that has emerged in the last three or four years that like I everyone I know their minds first went to Hanky in the aftermath of this and so I mean his 15 page exit essay exactly might have been a- he created the caricature as well I don't know I mean for the first 36 hours of this I was open to the possibility that he was being set up by some not necessarily by Hanky himself but by some like psychotic process truster because, I mean, look, it's perfect that this happened to the Sixers and those fans. Because, like, if you ha- if you asked me 10 days ago, like, wh- which franchise is most likely to be ensnared in a an elaborate burner account scandal that displaces its GM? Like, I would have said the Sixers instantly. And so, for it to happen, it, like... I I mean, even Ben Dietrich, the dude who wrote the story, is like an insane process truster himself. And so the whole thing is just kind of like too perfect. Um, I I don't know where it ranks. We should we should table this. We could discuss its ranking among crazy. Well, let me ask you that. Okay, let's keep let's keep going down this path. Let's say you were part of the New York law firm that had been contracted by the Sixers to investigate this. Where does Sam Hinkie fall on your list of people who you want to depose? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's on the list, right? I mean, pretty close to the top. Don't you at least want to get an official denial from well, him before you rule him out? That is actually one of the things that's pretty interesting. As this has all sort of unspooled over the last couple of days, and it looks like we're going to hit a resolution fairly quickly here. Um, and... He's got to be gone. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to just triple down on that. I don't see any way he survives. Let's give him five days. I completely hear you on that. However, there is still the question hanging in the air, who was this source? Because I don't buy the AI algorithm explanation whatsoever. And so I don't think it was Hinky. I Let me be very clear on that. But I would really like to know more, and I, maybe we'll never find out. But that is an element of this that is still, like, just fascinating to to speculate about. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there would be a pretty short list for who it could have been, right? It's either somebody in the organization who know, like, would be able to piece together that these public comments are sort of also private thoughts and, like, the light bulb would go off, right? (laughs) Totally. Uh, Or it would be someone close to one of the players who maybe raised one of the accounts as a red flag because they were upset. Hey, why is Julia Okafor? Why is Markel Fultz being talked about like this online? Who would know this information? And then, you know, somebody connected the dots from there, but uh, it's a pretty short list of possible people. And again, it's probably, you know, one degree of separation away from uh, the main actors here, which again, you have this like internal soap opera playing out over, you know, the most useless social messaging (laughs) system that there is. I I mean, come on. I just can't believe any of it's real. Like when the story first hit, I thought it was a, a joke post from the ringer because Dietrich has done stuff like that. And, and network does stuff like that for them all the time, like elaborate conspiracy theory stuff. So I didn't even read it 
when I first saw it on Twitter because I was like, ah, whatever. And then, like, a couple hours later, there are, like, 5,000 retweets and, and like, wall-to-wall jokes about the Sixers. I spent, like, probably four hours that night. I guess it was Tuesday night or Wednesday night just refreshing Twitter because it was that good. Um, One more question here before we go. Wait. No, we got to ask this question. Is Colangelo, and this is a two-time executive of the year in the NBA, (laughs) is his career done? I mean, does he ever come back? Because remember, he got hired by his dad, right? I mean, basically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, unless one of his other family members gets another job, <laughs> like, wh- where does this go? I wouldn't. I. I would not feel the need to ask that question. But thank you for taking it there to an even no, meter. You have to ask it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I look. I don't think he's. I don't think he's going to be in a GM role ever again. And um, you know. not because of this though i i think like he could come back from this but i don't know if he's gonna ever be able to come back from the fultz trade uh so i think that the combination of those two coupled with his kind of underwhelming track record in in toronto like this is kind of it and it's it's tough but he's also had a pretty awesome life so i don't feel too bad well, you know that that Jay Z line, "Grand opening, grand closing." Yeah, uh, yeah. Colangelo had the grand opening, <laughs> grand closing when it came to praise. There was like a six day period there where we all were hailing him for the Ilyasova and Bellinelli oh editions. God, Do you yes. remember that during the first the first round of the playoffs, where it was like, "Wow, Colangelo he didn't get any credit, but you can look. He took those building blocks that Sam gave him, and he really built a nice roster around them. Great targeted additions, and now he may never have a job again, according to you. And his, <laughs> you know, he may have got his, you know, his wife cost him his career. So, well, you know, that is a steep drop. He had some great collars along the way. Say that for him. Uh, I one other theory that I kind of enjoy. Art says. To me, this Colangelo thing increases the chances of LeBron going to Philly. LeBron's always been power hungry, right? He could get one of his guys to be installed as the GM and be LeBron's actual puppet. Personally, I don't believe he is the GM of the Cavaliers, but he does want to be. I don't think it's out of the question that LeBron or someone in his camp was the anonymous tipster to Ben Dietrich just so it would plunge Philadelphia into a state of chaos and LeBron could swoop in and save the day. Now, Ben, that is some A-plus tinfoil hat shit. I love it. So Rich Paul is the source. So it's not (laughs) Sam Hinkie. It's Rich Paul angling to be the Sixers GM so he could trade Joel Embiid, turn the franchise over to LeBron and Ben Simmons, and ride the fresh prince and you know king james all the way to the you know what though it could also be and this is a a theory that i heard broached from uh by spike eskin i hope i'm allowed to say it on the podcast uh it could also be Embiid's people and caa sensing that colangelo was beginning to favor simmons and kind of like waging a a war on colangelo via (laughs) burner account tip-offs uh to ben dietrich all i want to know is who was the who was the real deep throat to ben dietrich in this episode what we're what we're slowly stumbling upon is the fact that a lot of people might not have liked brian colangelo (laughs) i mean 
<laughs> I mean, this guy's got enemies in every shadow. Who can he trust, oh, Andrew? Man. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's... Well, I will. Can I? Can I have the hottest take possible uh, on this scenario? Is it bad that I basically agreed with every single burner Brian Colangelo take that was out there? <laughs> I mean, he he said Embiid was sort of uh, you know not fully engaged and you know maybe. Uh, you know, wasn't totally in shape. Yep. I mean, he, he said the future of the franchise was going to be Ben Simmons. He said Nerland Noel was sort of basically addition by subtraction. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he pointed out that, you know, Jaleel Okafor was essentially untradeable. Andrew, I think I've made every single one of those points on this podcast. So I'm not saying that I'm Brian Colangelo's burner account. I'm just saying I share a lot of opinions with that account. You stand with Colangelo, you know? That's a great place to end. That's a that's a perfect take. Uh and you're not you're not wrong. He was not wrong. Um free Colangelo and free Rodney Hood. Yeah, I think that's what we've learned. Uh, you know, you could you could be right on the principle, like the NBA referees in Game One, or like Brian Colangelo with his takes, but your process can be completely <laughs> off. But Andrew, our listeners can send in questions, comments, concerns, their conspiracy theories, and their finals reactions to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. They can also go to Apple Podcasts. Search Open Floor. It's two words, Open Floor. Easy to spell. Find our page. Scroll down. It will say Rate and Review. Tap five stars. We are your podcast Postmates or, or your Uber. It's you just really that like simple that to rate us. <laughs> hey, I've got a little script in my head that I re- run over and over and over again, Andrew. But uh, until next week, I will talk. All to right, you. man. Take it easy. We will talk after game two and hit us up with any further Sixers theories. And uh, Toby said the new finals logo is an abomination. Please discuss. I completely agree. That's the end of the discussion. The fuck that new finals logo. Anyways, we will be back next week. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.